there. There are no gaming consoles. We're going back to basics. And I really didn't feel that was my thing. But, you know, my research assistant, and I love her, Jacinda, she grabbed me and like she shook me and she said, don't you realize no one else can do this? It has to be you. You know about technology, you know about people, you know about prisons. You know, you have a unique set of skills that can really work here and help these people. And I'm like, wow, that's true. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with our co-host, Brad Gardner. Hi, Brad. Hi, Tiffany. It's not very often that you don't have a joke or a comment to make, so I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. I'm on my best behavior today. <laughs> Reading through the questions that we're going to be asking our guests, I know there is a question about quiet and how people respond to quiet. So I'm really curious because when you get quiet, Brad, there's something up, and um, maybe she can help me understand. <laughs> We have an amazing guest joining us today that we've been so excited to have on the show. I still remember when I got the email from our producer in the background, Mike Jones, saying, I have the most amazing guest. And I'm so excited that she's coming on the podcast. So she's here with us today. That's Helen Farley. Helen Farley is an associate professor in criminal justice within the Faculty of Law at the University of Canterbury. Her research interests are focused on prisons and corrections. She came to UC after working as the practice manager education and training at a Department of Corrections in New Zealand for nearly four years. Prior to that, she was the acting director of the Digital Life Lab at the University of Southern Queensland. She led the USQ-led Collaborative Research Network project with ANU and UniSA to develop a mobile learning evaluation framework. She was the project lead of the OLT funded from Access to Success Project, which developed standalone Moodle that enabled electronic access to course materials and activities for students without internet access. This project was so successful that Helen was awarded $4.4 million through the Australian government's Higher Education Participation and Pathways Program to take standalone Moodle and notebook computers to Indigenous and non-Indigenous incarcerated students across Australia. Helen has many years experience as an educator in higher ed and as a researcher of corrections and educational technology. Her research interests are focused around the use of mobile technologies, virtual worlds, and using technology to promote participation in higher education. We're so thrilled to have this dynamic guest with us today. Please join me in welcoming Helen Farley to the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome, Helen. Atamarie Tiffany, Atamarie Brad. That is peaceful morning in Tereo Māori. Oh, I love that. It's new for me. You may have caught on that Helen is joining us from across the world. Where are you joining us from today? I'm from Ototahi, Christchurch in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Amazing. And here we are in Marion, Indiana, wishing we were over there with you. <laughs> me too. So, Tiffany, before you ask your quiet question, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a quiet joke. So, oh, really? You, yeah. Okay. I like playing quiet tennis. It's like regular tennis, but no one raises a racket. 
<laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> we need it. We need it. There you go. In every show, I think. Well, you may be wondering why we're talking about quietness with this guest on our digital teaching and learning podcast, but Helen has written a paper on the different definitions of what it means to be quiet and discussed its span between being therapeutic or torture, depending on the person. Hmm. So Helen, which is it for you? And where is your favorite quiet place? Well, actually, Tiffany, nowhere is quiet for me because I have tinnitus. You talked about my circuitous career path earlier. And one of the things I used to do was be a music journalist. And I used to stand up the front in front of the speakers. And so now I have tinnitus and nowhere is quiet for me. But my favorite (laughs) almost quiet spot is a place called Te Waipapa or Diamond Harbour, which is just outside of Otatahi Christchurch, about 45 minutes. It's where I live. So Waipapa actually means flat water, but it's a lovely, quiet place and mm. nice to be out of the hustle bustle of the city mm. and just to hear the seagulls wheeling around and albatross and some other great birds. So it's a lovely, quiet place. And the, how I came to write a paper about quietness is that my partner is an acoustic engineer, so he designs houses for acoustic amenity. Wow. Wow. Interesting. I have to ask this question. When you're standing in front of the speakers covering (laughs) these concerts, who were you listening to? Ah, look, Brad, I have a blues soul. So people Mm -hmm. like B.B. King and Albert Collins and Genia Wells and all those great blues people. I was living in Australia at the stage who used to travel through Brisbane pretty often. It was it was a great time in music and I feel really privileged to have been part of it. Oh, and, man, you know, awesome. a couple of stories there too. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> so what does it mean to be quiet? And is it therapeutic or torture for people? Well, it's therapeutic and it's torturous. For someone who likes to go out and party, quiet can be uncomfortable and it throws you back in on yourself and makes you reflective. For other people, it's torture. What I didn't tell you about living in Diamond Harbour is that I actually live across from a port, Littleton Port Company, which is great. (laughs) And for some people, that's torture. When it's not quiet, it can be very noisy. (laughs) So quiet is both therapeutic and torturous. But for me, it's pretty therapeutic. Writing a paper with my partner, that was the torture. (laughs) That is always difficult. It is. (laughs) Well, you've also done some work with designing animal computer interactions. So we have to assume that you like animals. If you could choose any animal as a pet, and perhaps it's one you already have, what would it be and why? Tiffany, actually, I get back to that circuitous career path. My first <laughs> undergraduate degree was actually in veterinary science. Oh so I loved animals wow. that much as wow. that's what I wanted to do until I found out that's not always about liking animals. It's about sometimes putting them down. And I just oh. wasn't. I'm not built that way. I used to cry along with the owners who thought it was great, but nearly killed me. My favorite, look, I have to say, I'm a I'm a cat person. I do love a cat. I love the way they're all soft and squeegee all over. And I like <laughs> the way they're all slinky malinky. 
And I like that you have to earn their love. They're not like a dog. A dog loves anyone. But a cat, you've got to earn their love. They kind of hold you accountable. So I like that about cats. What a great answer. So, so what can you tell us about animal-computer interactions? Mm -hmm. Ah, well, there's all sorts of things I can tell you about that. And that's a really growing and emerging field. And we're actually doing lots of great research on that throughout New Zealand. So someone called Dr. Ann Morrison, who's at the Auckland University, is doing some great work there. So there is all sorts of things. And it goes from dogs wearing vests with electrodes in them to determine how they're moving and what they're doing and also allowing the dog to control a computer to facilitating communication and all things in between. It's a massive area. And I think what's really interesting is the way we look at production animals and we think of them as kind of, you know, slabs of meat on legs. And we forget actually that they're just, just like our dogs and just like our cats. And given an opportunity, a sheep will follow you and respond to you just like a dog or a cat will, and a cow will as well. And I think that's a, a major thing that's just beginning to kind of hit people's consciousness. And also the responsibility we might have for keeping production animals and that, you know, we've created all these living sentient beings to feed us. And we have a duty of care to make sure our animals are looked after and provided with adequate stimulation and welfare. So when you think about animals learning something new, is there a difference between dogs, cats, cows, other animals? in terms of the pace at which they can learn new things? I think it depends on what their motivation for learning is. Mm -hmm. You know, a dog wants to please you. They're going to learn how to do anything mm. just to keep you happy and put a smile on your face. Mm -hmm. A cat learns to please itself. <laughs> mm. So, you know, it depends which of those motivations you're going to appeal to. Or an octopus, you know, an octopus has the same level of intelligence as a cat, which has the same level of intelligence as a three-year-old child, you know. So <laughs> they're, they're smart things. It benefits us to think of them as being dumb and to mm. think of them as not learning and not being sentient and not having an opinion on things. I mean, one of the things I think about living where I do, a beautiful Te Papa, is watching the albatross and the seagulls dive mm -hmm. into the air and doing loop-de-loops. And I'm thinking they're not doing that to catch anything. They can't catch anything doing that. They're doing it from sheer exuberance and for pleasure. Yeah. Excellent. Hmm. One of the things I love about this podcast is, you know, we say we're at the intersection of digital teaching and learning, but we don't always know or couldn't have guessed what some of the expertise of our guests is going to be. And so this conversation already reminds me, Brad, if you recall early on, it's one of our first five guests, I believe, Joanna, talking about training bees mm -hmm. <laughs> as part of a military mm -hmm. initiative and just how intelligent, she was completely mesmerized by how intelligent these bees were. We learned so much then, and this conversation seems to come full circle. 
I also want to make sure that our listeners know we are still in the get acquainted section. So those easy softball kinds of questions where we typically ask people this or that, would you rather? But Helen's just such a dynamic (laughs) guest that it almost seems like we're already into her research scholarship. So this is really fun. No pressure. (laughs) Well, Helen, I am so excited about your involvement with folks who are incarcerated. Yeah. I've done a lot of that myself, and as an institution, we are currently developing programs and courses to offer in the prisons in our vicinity. What got you into that work initially? That's a tricky one, Brad, and it's not very glorious, I'm afraid. Funding, (laughs) research funding. And actually, I was really uncertain about going into this area to start with. Not that I didn't believe in education for incarcerated people. I totally did. I knew that was absolutely the right thing to do. But I thought people who worked in that area had to have a vocation for it. And I didn't really feel I had a vocation for it. At the time, I was researching emerging digital technologies for use in higher education. So I was looking at things like the Wii. Remember the Wii? The Connect, mm-hmm. other gaming consoles, stuff like that. I was wow. looking at that in higher education. And so to look at, you know, educational technology for people in prison, you know, there are no Connects there. There are no gaming consoles. Mm-hmm. We're going back to basics. And I really didn't feel that was my thing. But, Mm. you know, my research assistant, and I love her, Jacinda, she grabbed me and, like, she shook me and she said, don't you realise no one else can do this? It has to be you. (laughs) You know about technology. You know about people. You know about prisons. You know, you have a unique set of skills that can really work here and help Mm. these people. And I'm like, wow, that's true. That's true. And I can still remember her doing that in the car park of my university at the time. And once I got on board with that, I lapped it up, you know, like I knew it was the right thing to do. I knew it could change people. I knew education had changed me. And I had a pretty privileged, cushy background, you know, and it (laughs) still made a change in me. Mm -hmm. So I knew it could make a change in people who were incarcerated, I knew it could, you know, improve their cognitive skills, it could lift their depression, it could help them into employment, it could just make them feel better about themselves. And I knew it was the thing for me to do. Once I got past that initial blip, shall I call it, I was in, I was hooked. Very good. That's exciting. It is exciting. It still remains exciting. I'm anxious to hear the kinds of things you're doing. We're facing some roadblocks and challenges as we begin to create this program. So I'd love to benefit from your expertise today. Mm-hmm. Brad, I found there was a whole heap of prejudice against incarcerated people everywhere. Absolutely. So Absolutely. when I was looking at doing projects and I needed a car to go to my local prison, that was about three quarters of an hour away. Sometimes I couldn't get it. You know, the person who was responsible for doling out the pool cars said, you know, Helen, they're in there for a reason. I don't think it's a good use of university resources for you to go. Wow. And if I had a dollar for every time someone said something like that to me, well, you know, I wouldn't be working now. 
just <laughs> extraordinary. And I used to write these beautifully crafted, if I do say so myself, beautifully crafted research funding applications and I would get knocked back all the time and I'm thinking I just don't understand it until I figured out it was the same kind of prejudice that I'd been seeing at my own university. Mm -hmm. So what I started doing is saying I'm going to look at technological solutions for people without internet access, people in regional, <laughs> rural and remote areas and I'm going to practice on prisoners. <laughs> and once I started doing that, the research funding started flowing through. <sighs> and my last research project was worth four and a half million dollars. Wow. So, oh my! Our first project was to take ebook readers into prisons, and you know the only ones I could get without internet were actually hot pink. But that didn't seem to be a problem somehow. People didn't mind that, and we loaded course materials onto them so people could continue with their study when they went back to their cells and they loved those the people in prison loved those and actually it wasn't for the reason I thought the reason they loved them is because they had an inbuilt dictionary and it was good for their scrabble game ah. so, scrabble game. that's amazing <laughs> I loved it for that reason um, I got more funding to do more stuff with ebook readers, but I couldn't get the same ones and they actually failed. Um, they didn't work very well at all. And the people, because when I tried to introduce the technology into prisons, people would say to me, or well, prison officers would say to me, over my dead body, are you going to get technology into this mm. prison? We hear that a lot. Yeah. So I got it in, but those very same people, when those e-readers failed, they were also the people who said, Helen, those e-readers didn't work very well. Why don't you try laptop computers? And <laughs> oh, <I'm> like, my. <laughs> yes, let's Good do idea. that. Good idea. Wow. So we introduced laptop computers and we also introduced a server into the computer labs um, that was preloaded with course materials and program materials for incarcerated learners across a range of disciplines. And that worked really, really well. So by the time that project finished called Making the Connection, we had about 1,700 course enrolments. And now that still continues, even though I'm not there, it still continues. Wow. We made it a sustainable project and they have about 700 course enrolments a semester, three semesters a year. It's just embedded into the fabric of the university now and people can do like a bachelor of business or they can do a bachelor of general studies with foci on journalism or engineering or a range of different things we find that people are only incarcerated with us for about three consecutive semesters so really they're only beginning their higher education journey mm -hmm. while they're incarcerated they can use those courses as credit against anything they want once they get out. And we have a really good conversion rate. So a lot of those people going out are reconnecting with the university and finishing their studies. And that's repeatedly been shown to be one of the greatest deterrents to people returning to prison, having college coursework, earning a degree. Yeah. So hooray for you for yeah. overcoming those roadblocks. Yes. Yeah, they reckon it's about 40% reduction in recidivism rates for people who do wow. 
higher education and that's significant. In Australia and in New Zealand, it costs about $105,000 a year to keep someone incarcerated. It costs about $70,000 to sentence someone. Mm -hmm. So even a small reduction in recidivism rates causes a massive you know, decrease in what we're asking from the public. Absolutely. Not that that's the reason you should do it. You should do it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. It really does make a difference in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to go too far in the weeds with this, but I, when you were talking, I became curious with those courses that they're taking. I think I heard you say that the material is, the coursework is preloaded for them to access at any time. Is yep. there an instructor then assigned to the course or is it a self-paced kind of modular asynchronous course progression? So Tiffany, they enroll in the course along with students who are not incarcerated. Oh. They don't get contact with them because the courses are offline. In Australia, each state is a different correctional jurisdiction. So we have eight correctional jurisdictions in Australia. And what I didn't want to do is have eight different systems mm. sure. trying to maintain them yep. for the university. That goes into that whole sustainability yep. piece. And so what we did is cater to the lowest common denominator, which was no internet access. And so we designed these computers to run with our internet access and the course materials were preloaded onto them. But they submitted assessments and things to the course, well, we called them course examiners or the course lecturer, and they'd receive feedback back from them and they could also ring them as well if they needed specific feedback or help with an assignment or anything like that they could do that so they were enrolled along with regular students and what I have to say is that the retention rates are better for incarcerated students that the marks are better for incarcerated students and the progression rates are better for incarcerated students. So I actually suggested to the Vice-Chancellor that we incarcerate all of our students, <laughs> but uh, she wouldn't go for that. That's like a Brad Garner move. <laughs> in my experience, the students in a prison setting were some of the best students I've ever had. Aww. In terms of their yeah. motivation, their commitment, they're wanting to improve themselves. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. That's also my experience. And that's even the more remarkable when you consider those people are very often the first in their families to go to a university. Absolutely. And we would see them through from not being able to read and write, so being illiterate, progressing them through all the steps along the way until they got into higher education. Mm. I have to say over the term of that project, I cried a lot. Just just seeing, you know, the remarkable things and the remarkable Absolutely. transformations that I saw. I used to call it hay fever. <laughs> <laughs> this is my least favorite part of the show where we have to pause, but we are going to come back next week to continue hearing from Helen. So please join us then. And in the meantime, like and share our podcast, Digital to Learn. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.